How quickly do I see a price? Uh, I think it's somewhere between 20 to 30 seconds. Wow, so it's quick. It's quick. It's like a certain manufacturer might be on board and say, look, oh, I've got half a sheet of five mil I need to fill. Look, look on the platform, oh, that's a nest filler right there. I'll just take that job on and just fill up my nest. What would you say to people that might be thinking, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want anything to do with this online platform and we're just going to go out there and try and win business the way we've always done. So podcast nine with Estonian startup Fractory. This was actually meant to be podcast 10. Until you did a faux pas. Yeah, yeah. Mike's been giving me grief about my choice of, yeah, my choice of words on a previous cut of this. He said you can't use the word faux pas if, you, if you're from Birmingham because... Well, not with your accent. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the point. That's the point. It's, it's all right saying it if you don't sound like you. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway, I messed up on a previous podcast and I forgot to record on two of the microphones. <laughs> so we've got to re-record that one. So anyway, Fractory, episode nine. I thought this was interesting because I think both of us went in probably a bit more aggressive than we normally do, just really trying to drill into, right, overcome the objection. We're coming at this from we don't want to use you. So you tell us why. And I think the lads did a good job. And I think it was interesting. And some of the kit that they're putting together and a lot of the stuff that they said as well. I mean, there was, there's a lot of sound bites which will turn into video clips that were, I wouldn't say they were necessarily controversial, but I think they'll make people's ears prick up a little bit. You know, what, what, what was your overriding thoughts after we kind of got out? What did you think of the pod? And what do you think of the setup? It's an interesting concept, isn't it, of what they're trying to do from a different to an end product. Obviously, we spoke to many people from a raw materials point of view, and obviously they're the first to, that we've spoken to who are trying to do from a CAD design, getting quick, get quoted quickly, and potentially being able to order a prototype very quickly, if not mass production. So, from that side of it, it's really interesting. Like any of these platforms, having the idea and getting a product is the easy bit. The hard bit is getting the getting the people on the platform and getting it used. And yeah, getting the buy-in. And getting the buy-in. And without the buy-in, it, it doesn't work. But, you know, they've obviously had a lot of funding and a lot of support and, they've, and they're have and they getting good numbers and they're, they're, they're growing. So it's pleasing to see, you know, them doing well and it's going to, it will continue, won't it? Yeah, I think, I think that platform particularly with the amount of funding that they've had because they've had so much money thrown at it, and that they're going to be in all these different countries. And also, I think with it being machined components, I do think that the, the kind of supplier base, the people that will be supplying them and then going out to those customers, I think they're just a bit more technically savvy. So they're a little bit more on board with trialing it. So I think the adoption rate will be quicker. Well, also, if you've got, you know, spent a lot of money on capital equipment, you want that machine filled. So at certain times, like you said, you can literally change your parameters, change your costings, and you can change what type of work you want. Equally, what was good is, is as long as the customer keeps ordering it, they can keep with that what that same supply, and you're in control. So you're not feeling like oh, I've won it one day, but I might lose it the next. So I think the thought of loads of different elements are things that people are wanting, aren't they? So it's good. Yeah, take a listen to the pod. See what you yeah. think. Hey guys, Pete and Mike. The metal guys. Right, we're in Manchester today with Fractory. Fractory are an online, would we say online? Software, cloud solutions yeah, provider we'll go. of we'll go with that. fabrication services, something like that. We're interested in what you're about as a business, because I know last year you picked up some real big VC money to kind of push on, and you've got big growth plans since setting up in Europe, in Estonia. Now you head office here in the UK, but you're going to be looking to push out into the USA. So obviously we wanted to find out a little bit more about it. So we're joined by Mark Kerwin, lead sales engineer. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Uh, Johnny Lee. Sorry, Johnny Lee. I'll edit that. <laughs> <laughs> Lead CNC engineer. So yeah, if you can just give us a bit of an idea, how did Fractory begin? Yeah, let's just start there. What is Fractory? So Fractory started back in 2017. It was um, our founders, Martin, Rain, and Josip. To be honest, they were just sat around 
in a pub talking. Um, Martin was saying he was complaining about not being able to get his projects moving forwards, not able to like really trying to get a quote back from manufacturers and they either weren't giving him the time of day, kept delaying him, delaying, delaying, delaying. And over a couple of drinks realized that actually we could start using an algorithm for this and this should be able to be automated. Now, so happens that his mate Rain, who we was talking with, one of our co-founders as well, was on the development team for Skype, is insanely gifted. And they were able to start coming up with an idea on how to, to build a platform where engineers who were, quite frankly, just frustrated with the current way of quoting, they could come on get their prices, not necessarily even have to call up anyone, just see their prices and place an order. And that's where it started. And then it's, Fractory's just been developing more and more. Obviously they expanded within Estonia, got offices in Tartu and Tallinn. Then they looked their sites to the UK. So when they started up here in Manchester, cause quite a central hub to, to the UK, Martin came over himself, was helping set up here lots of expansion going on. I was, when I started, there was about five of us. I joined December, 2019, starting in the UK in the summer of that year. So hadn't long since been going. Yeah, just a handful of us in a small room since then been growing and growing and growing, expanding to new markets, like Johnny coming in in CNC, setting up pretty much you know, single-handedly the entire network for there. And yeah, just rapid expansion as we're, we're looking. I think um, the staff, we've been increasing by 250% employment per year. Uh, so it's, grow- it's growing yeah. quick what, as a business. You know, quick. when you talk about the issues with manufacturing, what are the main headaches you're causing with the price and what kind of projects are they? You know, like why should someone who's listening to that introduction there, mm-hmm. who are the people who should be speaking to Fractory? So we've got kind of a mix of people who we see actually benefit from us. So we've obviously got the more the lo- like the the hobbyists or small businesses or people trying to get their new products into the market, get prototyping done. These kinds of clients, if they go to normal manufacturers, might be overlooked just because they've not got, say, a voice behind them to be able to get people interested to quote people like the account managers in the manufacturers just might not have time to actually physically quote that stuff. Whereas with us, it's an algorithm. It can get priced, they can pay. You don't need to say, try and push your way to the front of any queue. It's all there, it's automated. And for the suppliers as well, they've got already priced jobs by feedback that they've given us on how they do pricing. So they don't need to put man hours into it as well. So that kind of realm really benefits. Also moving up to even medium companies where we've got account managers who can step in, oversee the the quality, make sure that this is all valid for them, trying to bring new products into, into their product line, as well as move their own existing products into a new network which can search around all these different manufacturers that have benefited from that first lot they can start seeing the projects for these ones as well and they don't have to go out and get their own marketing or put a lot of money into marketing because we're already bringing the clients to them gives the clients one voice one sorry one point of contact for all of their manufacturing and also gives our suppliers jobs which they don't have to go out and search basically just free jobs to keep their their guys employed keep their lasers ticking over keep their guys busy keep the shop floor open um moving into say the the larger companies with large-scale serial production because we've got such a well-rounded manufacturer base we can take their projects and basically we're free project managers for them um, we can split this between different people within our network who will do the best quality, the best price, be able to achieve their lead times. And we can really tailor make the experience of using us and the procurement to them. Our developers speak a lot with our, our clients as well as our production teams to try and make everything nice and streamlined. So basically when it comes to them it we can work to their own internal processes these big companies they have they tend to have bad communication between uh, 
um, different departments. Whereas our platform, if different people have logins, it's quite easy. They don't even need to go and so someone who's the purchaser doesn't need to go and talk with the production manager on the shop floor because he can just log on to our site and like Amazon, just see when the delivery date is going to be. So it can it can keep people who aren't in communication still in link and have oversight over orders going through. They'll so little things like that as well as the actual voice we have with our network. Just and how benefits. how quick can you get a quote? So if I've got a CAD file today, and mm-hmm. I literally I don't know any manufacturer sort of comes straight onto your platform. How quickly do I see a price? Uh, I think it's somewhere between twenty to thirty seconds. Wow, so it's quick. It's quick. And then you know the other side where you're saying people have to log in. Obviously that becomes like any kind of CRM, say for instance. It's only as good as the information people are putting in, doesn't it? So how does how does that work of making sure that people throughout the chain are using the login platforms to keep myself as you know, the person who's got the CAD file up to date? How is that is that quite easy to do or yeah. is, is that is that a quite a difficult thing to get people to do? So each step also has um might say automated emails that go out as well, saying like say if there is a delivery date change or confirmation of a delivery, invoices go to the right people. And that's where the actual humans behind things behind the, the platform also come in. So when you log in, say it was yourself one of us would typically call you, speak to you, understand what your needs are, understand what you want as a client, understand if you even want to be called up in the future. Like you might just want to keep it completely automated, but we'll help you get set up, um, make sure that the invoices are going to the right people, make sure the right people are on the system. We'll even sometimes explain to the people we're adding in where to go for your information. So that just comes down to a little bit of education but we do have automated emails that can go out as well. As you say, we're in automation, so might as well think, make things as uh, smooth as possible. This podcast is sponsored by the UK Metals Expo. After the successful launch of this event in 2022, the UK Metals Expo will be back at the NEC in Birmingham on the 13th and 14th of September 2023. For podcast listeners, you can secure a 20% discount for booking a stand by quoting the Metal Guys Talk Business when speaking to the event organisers about booking. The UK Metals Expo is an industry event connecting the full supply chain from primary metal manufacture through supply chain, processing, fabrication, surface coating and all the way through to recycling. Effectively, as they used to say in the old days, from melt to market. With full endorsement from the UK Metals Council, its trade members and other industry bodies, the show had great initial credentials and has the potential, in my opinion, to become a huge annual event in the UK, drawing exhibitors and attendees from across the UK and further overseas. With free-to-attend seminars taking place inside the show, it's definitely an event not to be missed by anyone with a career in or around the metal industry. We certainly enjoyed it and we look forward to seeing you in 2023. But for now, let's get back to the podcast. Talking about um, having the skill set, because that's obviously one of the main issues when you know, we've been in the industry a long time. So you, have, you can build those relationships with people, but you need that technical expertise. So, Johnny, you're down as lead CNC engineer for the business. So I'm guessing you're talking about CNC in most days. Just talk a little bit about your background, your experiences, and obviously how that's then relating and helping customers that are coming on board to speak with you. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a bit, bit of a weird one. Uh, I studied in uh, Birmingham. Hey, yeah, there uh, we go. ECU, uh, <laughs> TIC, back in the days. Yeah. Um, I studied computer-aided automotive design, uh, so it's all digital. I wasn't good at designing freehand, uh, but I was good with ideas, so CAD was the best tool that I could use. Um, I graduated, uh, and the first job I found, I moved back home, uh, was actually in sheet metal profiling. I was cutting uh, the designs up, uh, nesting and um, coating as well. Within about a year and a half, I kind of thought this is probably for me the best I can do in this company. So it was time to move on to something I, I enjoyed more. I uh, managed to find a job for a company in Wigan uh, who do stillages, mainly for the automotive sector and material handling. Uh, can I name Yeah, you can yeah. name them, yeah. Okay. Uh, they, they were called ATK Material Handling. It's where I really grew uh, as a designer, project solver, problem solver, sorry, and project management. 
but sadly I was young and um, it, it took a while for me to commute every day it was like an hour and a bit with the traffic so I found somewhere closer to home again in sales it was tubular cut steel for offshore industry yeah. stayed there for about a year just over a year and sadly the financial crisis hit oil and gas industry just plummeted yeah. and that division got closed down so I got made redundant and so I decided to take a few months out gather myself and you know go back and search for an engineering job so you've got quite a bit of experience then like really I, I was expecting you to say yeah come straight out of uni boom I was in refractory so you've you kind of cut your teeth in the industry before you've come here yeah and I've still got more <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah went through that at the same time, my parents decided on a new venture to open up a, um, it was a Chinese supermarket in Liverpool and they asked me to help set it up. So I thought, yeah, I'll do it for a few months and then I'll go back into engineering. One and a half month, years later, uh, my girlfriend got pregnant and I was like, right, I need to go back into engineering, um, more manageable hours rather than working for a family business. So reached out, put my CV on the market and a company called Microsystems UK. They touched base with me and they actually a injection molding company for medical devices. And so I must impress there, uh, got my first job back in engineering as a metrology engineer. So that's where I learned my CNC trade. Really, really good people uh, working in that company. And yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I learned a lot uh, with in injection molding. And within a year, they asked me to project manage the another division, uh, which is the micro molding side, like really tight tolerances. Uh, so I thought, okay, uh, yeah, I'll do that. Did that for a year, and I got I got headhunted back into the um, material handling side in the automotive sector. The, the actual company got bought up, and I made a good impression there. So they decided to put my name across to the new owners to get me back. So they poached me back which was good good prospects but then COVID hit and the company just didn't survive uh, Jaguar Land Rover just wasn't purchasing anything no one was buying cars we were in lockdown so I lost my job sadly there and within a week or less than a week factory kind of maybe an offer and I've been here since so it was so like two years, two years yeah. yeah two years now so so you've been hit twice by yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, how have you found obviously coming in and having to set up this division from scratch, you know, of speaking to a lot of people in the CNC world of getting them to see the benefits of Fractory. How's that been for properly both of you really? How have you found that? I found it difficult. It was like, I was the first person in this division in, in UK. It was a struggle to find a supplier base, one that would actually A, talk to you because you're in relatively new business. Number two, the pricing, we've still got to be competitive. If they're on board anyway, and they're like, say 50% more expensive than what the client could get, there's not, there really isn't any point. So it's building that relationship with the manufacturing teams at the same time as with the clients. That was my main struggle. And I did a lot of overtime, especially in the first six months, setting up the, the division just to get, try and get to where it should be. And uh, it's, it's paying off. There's a lot of hard work at the beginning. I'm not going to lie. What are people like when you start to speak to them? Because, you know, this business is very well, I say this business, this sector in the UK is old. old very, very old. So people are quite set in their ways that this is the supply chain. This is how we do things. This is what our customers want. And this is what we want as our suppliers. All the supply chains already set up. So when you're mixing it up and then you're saying, we can do a quote in 20 seconds or something, it's kind of a bit, mind-blowing really so how are you overcoming or what are the, the typical objections that you're speaking when you're trying to onboard people as, as suppliers for this this platform i think they're just very apprehensive and they've got some like bad experiences before with similar companies as ourselves they've used it we're actually a free service we're not a subscription you know you know monthly fee uh, business so we don't charge manufacturers for that which is already a positive in our eyes we try to explain it's it's price jobs we actually got the jobs there for you to take if, if you so wish so it's not a wasted opportunity for you and we actually had to put case studies in place to show manufacturer a has grown x amount and taken x amount of revenue each year 
you know, just to show them what they can be achieving. That's an interesting thing you say that. If they take those jobs, if they wish to. So how does that work? So, you know, like say I'm a manufacturer today, I've got CNC machines and I'm speaking to yourselves. What what information do I need to give you to be on your platform for you allowed to get the jobs that I can see that the jobs that I want as a business, how does that how does that work? So the initial kind of right made an introductory phone call, I'm sold. What do I need to do to ensure that the jobs that I'm seeing are the right jobs for my business? So typically it can boil down to things such as minimum order charge. So making sure that you don't see anything below that and any information you can share about the machinery you have in the, um, on your shop floor, uh, what you can provide, also even what you can outsource for as well yourself. Factor that all in together and then once an order's come through, basically just the order will look at all of our uh, production teams and see who ticks every box for it. That will then become available to you, I think, a couple of times a day. You might also receive an email saying, this job, this job, this job, and this job are all live. You can go on, have a look at them. Some people price it up more rigorously on their side, like have a look at a job, download. You can download all the file packs from our sites. They'll price it up quite a lot more rigorously, but we do have other production teams who literally share with us their... Um, cost per hour cnc obviously like price per pickup these kinds of things yeah so different factoring um methods for the cost we put that into our algorithm so the more feedback you give us the more accurate that pricing is and then you can just literally we've got some suppliers who just look on and just pick 20 up just fill like more on the laser side just fill their lasers with that like filter it by everything in the same thickness so they can put it all into just one nest and do 10, 15 jobs just in one go for them. And all those jobs are the jobs that are based on their hourly rate, That the jobs that they are like, that's profitable. For our, my business, that's profitable. Those 20 job bank, have all of those and the way are gone. They've done no BD. They haven't got to worry about any kind of exposure out there. They're just every day, pick, in theory. Well, picking yeah, up the right jobs that they want. It's like a certain manufacturer might be on board and say, look, oh, I've got half a sheet of five mil I need to fill. Look, look on the platform. Oh, that's a nest filler right there. I'll just take that job on and just fill up my nest. And that way you're utilizing your scrappage and it just saves time and money on their end. It's, it's win-win. And how does it work with the end user being credit worthy? You know, how does that payment terms and all that, the, the money, how does that all so, change over hands? That's what um, we work with. So we deal with the clients directly, our manufacturers don't. So payment terms and credit, that's stuff that we agree with the clients. But once an order goes live into ready for production, that falls into our payment terms with our suppliers. So like if it's uh, 60 days after they complete it, we get that sorted and that's usually regardless of clients' payment terms with us. Sometimes there are jobs like so large that credit terms kind of don't really work on that. It's got to be a bit more custom, such as a certain amount paid per month or weekly or for these serial production jobs where you've got deliveries once a week for the course of a year um, already pre-bought, well, pre-ordered. Payments can work a little bit differently, but we've got a good, um, good communication with our suppliers and with our clients in those cases. So we can usually work something out which is beneficial on, on both sides and makes everything run nice and smooth. Do you, do you credit protect yourself then? Because effectively you're that intermediary, you're almost a payment window to your suppliers. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, so I believe we're protected. We're looking further into that to be able to expand it even further. Yeah. Say how much exposure we can take, yeah, um, and get yeah because obviously that, that gives insured. some advantages for certain people that they're like, look, you know, because we know ourselves, like we used to trade with accounts where you're like, there's a ten grand limit, someone's dropping you a thirty grand order, and you almost have to think, oh, what can I do? I suppose with you guys being in the middle and having that bigger portfolio of customers, you can share the risk. So if anything, it could work as an advantage to allow people to take not riskier, but they can be less risk averse because you're effectively covering some of that debt. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Making trade easier, um, making them be able to make more leaps towards success in their own business. If they're getting a load of orders in, they'll be able to get stock that's a little bit higher than that. Those tend to be, we work them more on case by case. So we work with the accounts department out in um, 
out in Estonia and what's quite good, most um, accounts departments tend to be very, very black and white. Our accounts department can be quite human when it comes to usually historic clients, ones that have been been good with us, been with us for quite a while, got like tens, twenties of orders with us, been, or been with us for a couple of years. We can always start that conversation. Because that's one of the issues, isn't it? We're like you know, getting credit insurance in the metal sector. It's as soon, as soon as there's like a sniff of a bit of a recession, you just get them all pulled. It's a complete nightmare. So I was just wondering, you know, what, what is that approach to make sure that, you know, people aren't going to be hit with any kind of bad debts? Um, I think a lot of it is relationship as well. Um, like any kind of new company, you, you kind of get a feel for the actual the client or the manufacturer itself. Like recently, we've actually upped a credit uh, limit for some of our historic clients and they've placed bigger orders with us because of it. They're paying on time. So we're seeing the benefits of that. So it is, as Mark said, very case by case. This podcast is sponsored by Amron Architectural. Amron Architectural are a company that I've been working with for nearly two years now and the business has grown rapidly over that time. Um, Very experienced staff, uh, very knowledgeable within the architectural interior design space. Um, The ethos of the company is to kind of inspire choice, engage uh, and work with metals and meshes of all different types. They work with classic woven meshes all the way through to bespoke profile cladding panels. And uh, you know the experience of the guys there is, I would say it's it's right up there in the um, in the UK. They've developed a full range of systems for all aspects of internal and external environments, from bespoke ceilings, gantry systems, specialised partitions to large external facade systems, and, and pretty much everything in between. Um, I think the thing that strikes me about these guys is um, they're they're interested in clients' ideas. They like to talk to clients. They like to know what's happening and develop the systems that fit with the with the trends, but also the design requirements um, of the architects in the industry and the and the clients. So, yeah, a company that definitely go in places. It's great to have them as a as a sponsor of the podcast. Um, and if you're looking to create those exciting internal and external designs, then um, these are the guys to talk to. You know, the manufacturer, sorry, the, you know, the supply chain, say I put my CAD file on and that person, the same Manchester wins the job and they, and they do it, it's fine. Instead of them wanting them to go directly once it's been delivered, they know who the person it's come from, I presume. They won't know. They won't know. It's um, all uh, factory packaging, factory taped, our delivery list, our generated shipping label. But does it come direct from the client or does it come through? It it comes direct from the manufacturing team, yeah. Delivered from there. Because normally you say, like, I'm just being half a dick here. But when I used to have to send stuff out on plain labels, often the label would still have the name of the company on there. So even if I plain label it as Fractory, there's still something on there that if that gets lost, it comes back to me. So there's still the... So I just wondered how you're kind of getting around that to make sure that... We have the returns to actually to our office here. Yeah, so if there is ever an issue like that, we could get a, a pallet delivered to here and then work out to get it to our client quite quickly. Yeah, what I was going to ask was, is how, how does it work that that company then in Manchester has picked that job up, right? And it's nice work for them. They like it. I then upload my file again, get my next quote for next month's job. But I like that company. They're like, that was a nice job. I want to win that again. I presume they're not guaranteed to win it every time. Honestly, they're getting a wide variety of jobs. But you know, like normally when you've built that relationship, like I've delivered that well, the customer likes the quality. How do they ensure that then the building long relationships with a client that they don't really know us about? So obviously building it with yourselves. But at the same time, someone else in say Leeds could pick up that job, but then there might be a lot more burrs on the end of the sheet metal. You know, it might not be to the same quality. They might have, diff- you know, how do that, you know, so then user, I literally don't know from one day to the next what inquiries I'm going to get through yourselves, but there'll be some work. You'll be like, well, I want that every month. That's, that's nice work, that is. That's exactly why I want to be using your platform. How do they get that preferential or not get preferential treatment to ensure they win that job every month? I mean, um, for me, it's, uh, I, I know the client itself and I know, who has won the work for them. So I would actually send it straight to the client who's kind of quote first. 
and say, look, you know, this is a returning client. I actually let them know this is a returning client on job number X, Y, Z. You've done it before. They're happy. Do you want to win this one? Do you want to have this one? And that's how I, I keep it within the same manufacturing team. So it's still quite a human element because I think that's the thing, isn't it? When people think online, you know, you were saying certain clients, they don't want to talk to us at all. They just want to place orders done. But when I'm listening, if we roll back a little bit, you said right at the start, hobbyists, prototypers, people who make a phone call to a big company and the big company, they don't care. They're not bothered. They don't, I, don't, I don't want to talk to you for half an hour about your project, mate. I, don't, I literally am not bothered. Those kind of people, this is a great platform for because you're not discriminating against the, the quality or the potential of the job. But I suppose some of those bigger companies that are coming through, there's, there is that kind of how is the relationship still being formed and how do you see that going forward, those relationships? Because as you get bigger, I'm guessing as you get more people on the platform, it's going to be more difficult because you don't want to just increase headcount, I'm guessing. So how, how are you kind of trying to minimize the amount of human interaction because it does still sound like there's, there's quite a lot of human interaction behind the program so like going back to the um automation of like say the manufacturers who work and pick stuff up you are right there are some cases particularly i think more in the sheet metal sides than the cnc just at the moment um where jobs like say recurring orders can be going through and picked up by different suppliers now at the moment, we have, well, still a fair few, but we have some consistent suppliers who constantly are picking up those jobs. They're the ones who, in their own shop, they've got um, a screen which is just dedicated to jobs on the platform. And these are the ones that are picking it up. Now, our supply chain, they work really hard to make sure that these jobs keep going through consistently. So making um, standards working on making standards for deburring, standards for tolerances, what we expect the actual parts to look like, say with burns. Um, we have specific packaging standards that we give out so that we can achieve, even if it does go to a, a shop in Leeds when you previously had one from Manchester, it still gets out to our client consistent. If there are ever issues that do come up, we've got a full supply, like you can submit your reclamation to our supply chain and they can have a look and like say four inconsistencies we will always look on that for nothing more than going back to the supplier with an fyi noticing that they're actually dropping beyond this other one and making sure that we can get that rectified so that it carries on being consistent for all of our clients how, how you know obviously you want to grow your supply chain you want to grow your your customer is obviously uploaded how do you quality control your suppliers you know that it's not just a case of that there's loads of you know, across industrial states across the UK, there's these little kind of independent, family-run engineering companies. How do you ensure that as a as a brand you're building, that the suppliers on your books are quality assured, are following the right processes, are up to factory standards, that with customers who are unaware of these, that you are using, you know, I suppose the... Um, well, yeah, you're using different people, but someone wants the same quality every time. It's yeah. irrelevant of yeah. where so you're placing the order. Yeah, how do you manage that quality management process, really, from from yourselves, that you ensure that you're getting the right suppliers on your books? So that's actually with our colleague, Rowan Hill. He's our network manager. So him and our supply chain work on the quality assurance of jobs that are currently go through production, going out for delivery, simple things such as checking online pictures of these um, goods to make sure that each time they're going to look well. That can be more enforced on a specific orders or they can be doing a cross-check across a bunch of um, orders to be delivered out from different suppliers, making sure that the quality's up as well as he actually physically goes to shop floors to make sure particularly like larger orders that are coming through are being seen too well and check a few uh, few of the other orders as well whilst he's there. So we try to have as much of a presence on the suppliers as possible to ensure this. We've got um, one manager who runs logistics um, to make sure that packaging, things are going out on time, basically the couriers are picking up the correct package when they actually arrive at the shop floor and making sure that all of that runs smoothly. We're constantly working iteratively with any complaints that we get on um, get on orders. That's dropped massively, I think. Yeah, I think it's dropped by like, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, something like that. 
at least from last month. So we're constantly going down on that. So if we do get any reports, we do take them more seriously because that is one of the major things that we had to crack right in the beginning was making sure that things could go through consistent. We did like to try and work originally with putting stuff into preferred manufacturers, but COVID saw that that was not, didn't have any longevity. When you want to put 30 jobs in with one manufacturer one week, but every single person on the shop floor got pinged by the app and all of a sudden it's gone down, we physically can't put the jobs in there. You don't know when they're going to reopen. You can't say to a client, say, thank you for your money but we don't know when we're going to deliver your job. We had to try and adapt, put it in with others, put this uh, quality in place. Um, that's, that's good to think about. So, so we have a yeah. you know, big supplier base that we can actually say, sorry, we're gonna have to take this job because obviously COVID and we, we shuffle it around to you. Over a it probably benefited you, I'm guessing as well. COVID, like I'm guessing a lot of people then started shopping around online for solutions and you just happened to be there at that stage already. We, we've grown uh, during the pandemic, which is yeah. a good sign itself. Not obviously a pandemic, but you know, business-wise, yeah, we, we've definitely grown. Within the business, you've obviously got the UK, you've got Estonia. Was there anywhere else within the world? We've got office in Finland and we've just opened an office in Chicago, US. You know, say if you're a UK manufacturer, you've got a UK spot, is the emphasis that jobs that come within the UK have to stay within the UK? Or is it an open platform that if you've got people who are, say, in the Far East or you've got people in, you know, does is there a part where obviously there's a lot of data being collected of what UK manufacturers are using? Is there is one part of your brand that you want to keep UK manufacturing in the UK? Or do you see that changing where... Maybe in the Far East, you're collecting this data and actually you can go to tender for that type of work to then be mm. to be taken away. What's the plan of that? So at the moment, we prefer to keep production within the region of the customer. Also came up from COVID, it's just keeping those supply chains nice and close, sustainable. For if something goes wrong at the moment, like I was saying about our network manager, or if we've got a bigger project, you can hop on a car and like at worst, he's driving five hours to go and make sure that something's going to be working. That does make things a lot easier for us to control. So like say in America, keeping the American production there. We actually, before we opened up Chicago, we were having the American stuff produced here and then shipped across. You can imagine that's okay for a box. As soon as you got to a few tons, you're looking at 14 grand for shipping. (laughs) But in in the future, like we do have certain projects that come across where we do need to start looking a bit further out, like going to our Estonian colleagues for a little bit of an assistance because they've got machine shops with different types of tooling or access to different grades of material. We quite often get a lot of um, requirements for like say US grades, which you can't get here. Mm-hmm. If someone needs to have something in gauge or an imperial thickness, you, you just can, you can't get it here. So we can go out to the States. In those instances, talking with the clients, explaining what's happening, and if they are okay with this, keeping them completely in the loop. Odds are, they've got a problem, they just want a solution, so they're like, great, go for it. But you don't know if they like to stamp their parts with made in the UK on them. So still talking with them. Basically, we have the opportunity to have a global manufacturing network, but just having that local size at least for automated jobs, um, the more straightforward ones. We prefer that and we prefer to be pumping the money into the UK manufacturing industry as well because the more jobs we give to them rather than outsourcing out, the more they want to work with us, the more voice we have, the better network we have, uh, the more money we can pump in and it just goes up and up and up like we've had for the last, well, since I've been in nearly three years now, tripling the growth each year with suppliers expanding and it's just because these relations are being built because we have this funnel of jobs that we're able to put across into them rather than taking the jobs out overseas you talk a lot about the the pros and again when you sound about onboarding particularly johnny it can be difficult it's going to be people listening to this who are thinking it's just another one it's just another online platform we've seen a few of them coming up and down and also there's the issue of like what's the risk to us like in a way if we're supporting these guys and giving them all that information but then potentially more and more partners are coming on board it could potentially water down 
the business that we help you win, you get stronger, you start winning those clients. And they're not necessarily winning them directly, which is the more old school mentality that I was saying you've got to overcome. Like, what would you say to people that might be thinking, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want anything to do with this online platform. And we're just gonna go out there and try and win business the way we've always done. Why are they maybe thinking, uh, not necessarily incorrectly, but what would you say about how they might need to think differently about a partner like yourself rather than just fearing what you're doing? Are you saying from the supplier side? I'm looking more the at the supplier. Side? I'm not, not okay. looking at someone who's a client. They're just like, yeah, boom, this is another place. If we can get it, get the right price, get the right lead time, done, fracture you, win the order. I'm talking more about the people that are making it who've put hundreds of thousands or millions of pounds into capital equipment and are then thinking, I'm not so sure about using you as a, an outlet for my product. So with those, they've put a lot of money into the machinery and equipment, but they've also put a hell of a lot of money into training and hiring the right staff. And we've got some of the best brains in the world in the UK in manufacturing. If you're a business owner, what would you rather your your shop floor or your account management sides looking at? 20 jobs, which could make, say, 10 grand just with simple files or a few fag packet drawings or they have to go out to 20 different people and ask all of them questions or would you like him to look at a bit more of a complex assembly job which is also worth 10 grand and putting some time into that and then being able to be done with that and move on to the next 10 grand job that first lot they're still they're still missing they they wouldn't have been able to see that if they have to kind of make the choice or the ju- the staff just get a little bit more overloaded then you've got to hire more staff to come in you've got more overheads you've got to put more you want to put more marketing out there because you want to put your time into these bigger guys you don't necessarily want to or at least the bigger order side of thing you might miss out on quite a lot of good stuff as well um, which we can process at your pricing and put it there right on a silver platter some of the guys who are our points of contact directly in um, suppliers, they're hitting their yearly targets just with us as their only clients. And they have, rather than 50, 60, 100 people ringing them up, all chasing up jobs and chasing up updates, we've got one guy in logistics who can chase all of that. So one point of contact, you've got to give your information over one time. It saves countless man hours and also a lot of headaches for the production teams, just trying to find a way to balance between these different levels. And I know I was saying examples as like 10 gram, but we're putting through a hell of a lot more than that. I think it's around 300 to 400, oh no, sorry, about 250 to 300 grand worth of gross revenue is coming through our, um, through our system in a month. So it's, yeah, so it's a lot of money for these guys to just sit and pick out or start wanting to work on these projects. And also, because it's saving their time, they're making more money elsewhere as well on their own things that they want to be working on. This podcast is sponsored by Anglo Stainless. Anglo Stainless are a stockholder of pipe fittings and flanges based in the UK. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with Anglo Stainless for... Well, for many years, actually, uh, I've experienced the quality of their materials and service firsthand with um, thousands of items in stock from low pressure BSP all the way through to high pressure forge fittings, as well as butt weld, hygienic gaskets, pipes, valves and flanges to suit. They're a great place to find the products you need all in one place. They've got a really experienced team supplying products across the UK and also overseas. But for more details, check out the podcast show notes or give them a call. Uh, they can well recommend it from me and would be a great addition to anyone's supplier network. Order with confidence from the team at Anglo Stainless. But now, let's get back to the podcast. What I wanted to ask you, Johnny, um, you've obviously worked in automotive for a while. You've been doing not necessarily additive manufacturing, but you said you were doing um, what was the other, uh, injection molding, things like that as well. A lot of the aerospace market, automotive market, they have really quite exacting standards and tolerances, but they often want additional testing, 3.2 tests. They want people coming in and actually making sure that, you know, the process has been done correctly and to an external, you know, accreditation. At the moment, it sounds like there's no, (laughs) you can't go and physically 
meet those manufacturers. So I'm guessing that it means that certain jobs are kind of out of your domain at the moment. How are you going to start trying to hit those more exacting standard jobs so that you can do, you know, the bits where things are being ticked off? Because there is still, that's always going to be part of the manufacturing process that people need to get on site. They need to look at kit. They need to check that it's calibrated correctly and all the tolerances are right. They can't just go, oh yeah, we just trust you, done. How, How are you getting around that? Well, how will you get around that? Yeah, <laughs> we, we are looking into uh, a role. Um, Willem Hion, he will be in charge of that, um, vetting manufacturing teams. He's a global, he's going to be like a global supply yeah, manager. Regional network manager. Yeah. So he, he will be in charge of looking into the processes and creditations needed and vetting them. At, right now we're ISO 9001 approved, uh, but certain jobs, yeah, they, they need tighter tolerances. Like for instance, BAE, can I name? Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, they they come onto our platform. Um, at the moment, we're just doing prototype work for them. Uh, hopefully, that will grow to bigger things uh, once we get bigger as well, and the the confidence confidence is still there. So we are expanding. If we do get any questions regarding accreditation, we do look on that case by case. I think we've done a information pack previously to a. The one that Joel has, I don't know what name, Innovations. We had to do an information pack uh, regarding accreditations as well, and they were happy with it. So we, we took our suppliers, our manufacturing, the one that was actually doing their work. Um, we had to get permission, obviously, and send redac- reductions. And um, yeah, the, the client was actually happy with that to see the paperwork was filled. And um, eventually something that we'd like to, to factor in. Not sure if it's on the cards just yet. We need to get all of the standards all organized. But on the platform, if you would upload your parts, then you could have different quality standards that you want to check. So then manufacturers that have already provided the accreditations, the documentation to those standards, all of a sudden only those can see that job so that they're agreeing to certain standards with us. So we could maybe just raise that quality up, such as if you're specifying on your drawings or specifying in our site that um, you've got a really tight tolerance, you specify that manufacturers who can provide that tolerance and will provide that tolerance are the ones that that job would go across to. Do you see this just becoming the norm? And how quickly do you think, you know, this purchase, and you know, is going to just become like an online because in our in our personal lives pretty much everything e- even trying to get the weekly shop you don't even bother going to the supermarket do you? you can just get anything you want so how long do you think we're looking at years wise before this becomes the majority of the buying in your opinion i know i know you don't you can't just wave your finger and no but you can look at the growth the guys must be talking you're expanding all over the shop so where do you think that break point is where this becomes the norm i think maybe two to three years hopefully that quick. Uh, it'll definitely be a lot more in the conversation at least in two three years yeah because you think now about global supply chains what's what's going on um politically and economically they want a faster turnaround a lot of the clients that are asking although they've asked for like a two-week event johnny can you do any sooner and that's a conversation I've, I've got to have with the actual manufacturing team. So the scope is there for instant pricing and just I want my pot tomorrow. So yeah, I think definitely two, three years, it's, it's going to progress a lot further than what we think it is. I mean, just just going, rolling back, like right at the start, you said, put your CAD drawer in, upload your CAD file. You know, and I was listening to one of the other pods that your um, CEO was talking about and saying about the security of that being far more secure to do this. So you've got that as a benefit as well. But how do you get a price back in 20 seconds? There's like, here's a drawing, here's a grade of material. Like how much information have you had to get in to pump into your system to be able to do that? Because people, you know, we see people balls up quotes all the time, all the time. So how are you being so accurate and then making sure that when you're winning those orders, they're at the right prices so that everyone can make the money? Yeah, so in essence, it's quite a lot of information, just over thousands and thousands of quotes that we've received from our um, production teams, as well as feedback that we've had directly getting um, consistent updates on material prices. So some of our suppliers, when they make their stock order, they feed us in the price per tonne. 
So we're able to break that down and price up the jobs. Now, obviously it can't always be absolutely bang on, but we've got processes in place where if there is a little bit of a mismatch, we can chalk that up, report it back that there has been an error and do an iterative process. But still, as you were saying, because we've got so many jobs coming through, still not bothering necessarily the client with that. We can obviously chalk that up to a little bit of an error in the system. To be honest, that's quite far and in between. Because the easy stuff, look, quoting, you know, there's there's a piece of metal, it's a rectangle, it's got two holes in it and a slight chamfer, like easy, 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 once you've done it lots of times. But when things get a little bit more complicated and you're alluding to that, we want that type of work, our clients want that type of work, it's more profitable, it's better quality and they can move on. There's a lot of calculations that can sometimes go in with the multiple folds and again, the different grades of material, material prices have been moving all over the shop. So I'm a bit, there's just a bit of me that's like, that's how, how many quotes are actually going on and being done in 20 to 30 seconds or is that like 5%, 10% of what's coming on and there's a lot of manual work behind the scenes? There is manual work behind the scenes. I think we capped the automated at about two and a half thousand pounds. Like I say when the materials were going quite massively fluctuating because around that kind of value, even for large jobs, quite a lot of it goes into the setup as well. Mm-hmm. But we do have, say, on our side, we're able to still get the automated pricing, make sure that it's right and then send it back to the client. So we can still do it quite quick within a couple of hours just to make sure that the actual pricing is bang on. Yeah, it is just a lot of information that we've got and also the conversations we have with our suppliers and then being able to share that information with us um, and wanting to because they want our prices to be accurate. They don't want to go onto the jobs and see that all the prices are too too far below what they'll do because they don't they'd want lose the work. interest. Yeah, they don't want the work, do they? Yeah, exactly. So it, it's just a constant iterative process. Suppliers again, I know we keep drilling into suppliers, but I just see that as more like the customer, I get it, this is great, it's just another place to throw your inquiry out to. But I think for those suppliers, how much work are these guys needing to do? Because I'm guessing some of the guys that have jumped on board quite quickly are quite forward thinking with their own software and systems, so they can work with you quite closely. But for maybe companies that are have been a little bit slow with the uptake. They might have good volume, good machinery, good equipment, but they've got a big network of customers and they're looking and thinking, well, we're carrying in it anyway. Last two years, we've been making more money than we know what to do with. Is there a big workload for them to actually get qualified? Because it does sound like you need quite a lot of information or is it quite an easy process to get on board with you? To be honest, um, as Johnny was saying before, it's not a, we're not one of the monthly subscription services. It is free to come on and have a look at the jobs. Now, on the other side, there is manual work, like trying to auto-price large welding jobs. There's too much much to think about in welding or whether it's producible, what the cost is going to be in those assembly jobs, particularly more complicated. We do get a lot of jobs like that coming through as well. So there is money to be made if they have this all singing, all dancing shop floor that can really help us unlock these clients for their large-scale production runs. They could go looking at those jobs and at those prices, say more on a manual basis as well. And then when we're finding out their prices back and how they work and how the communication will be, we can find out more if we're going to work there. So the initial onboarding can be from more of a, in a bit of more of a traditional sense. However, the guys who do communicate more with us and do provide us with the information, to be honest, as much as they can, they get more work per bit of information they give us. So they start seeing like, oh, I I say this little thing. I, I let them know that we are about to invest in a new press break. We're investing in some new lasers. Okay, I can start taking on more and more work. And the more work you do, because there is also the manual side behind it, the account manager's such as us, know how to work with you, know, and are able to send more jobs across to you. Another benefit as well is every single job going through our system has standardized files. So the bending files are the same, the DXFs are the same, the step files are processed through the same. So the the core files of every job is 
dead easy. So press break operator trying to have a whole day folding factory jobs, even if it's 50 different jobs, every single one of them is presented in the same way for him. You know, he might have had a couple of hours sleep the night before because his kid wants to watch Paw Patrol in the morning or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. And um, yeah, he might not want to have to go, all right, I need to decipher another, another drawing graph, just finished that. What's this guy on about in his drawings next? It it brings a lot of efficiency to your own shop floor. Yeah, I mean, as as a supplier, we, you know, coming on board, we like to streamline the process as mm -hmm. much as we can. If we find any say roadblocks, we we investigate it, we improve on upon it. If if you're a supplier and you say you you've got all the jobs that you you can take on, maybe one day you don't have all the jobs you can take on. Using our service is just a, a bonus, really. You still got your core business, which might be turning over like, what, five million a year. Using our service, you might be able to fill another two million a year per se, you know? Um, it's not gonna cost you anything. Uh, maybe a little bit of time, just get used to the platform and quoting on some jobs, but your work is still your work. We're not taking your work away from you, so there's no risk in that sense. It's just Brucey bonus, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> well, look. Thank you for explaining it to us. I think we've learned a lot, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, interesting. I mean, look, there's more and more of these kind of things coming online. We've seen it. I think, you know, there's definitely, you're doing the right thing. I mean, you don't you don't pick up 9 million quids worth of funding if, you, you know, if people don't believe in kind of what's happening, how it's going to grow. But yeah, good luck with it, guys. And thanks for joining us. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. One of the things when I was editing this back up that really stood out was that one comment where we asked, how quickly do you think it will become the norm to just buy CNC machine products online? And I reckon it was going to be two years. Do you think that, Mike, though? Do you really think that it will be the norm? More than 50% of people will be buying CNC machine parts online within two years? No. Why? I think, was, I think, I think it was a real, yeah, look, I looked at that comment a bit like when people go into Dragon's Den and value the business at a million quid. <laughs> now that's what, now that's what, look, look obviously, look, that, if that's their mission and that's what they want to try and achieve, then who are we to say that they won't? Because that's, they have a more better insight of looking at that business of the numbers they're achieving than we do. But equally, from someone who doesn't know any of that information, I'm looking at it. It did seem I'm, optimistic, didn't it? Yeah, and I'm looking at, you know, the type of people that I've sold metal into. And let's face it, when you're selling metal in, there's, there's very few, you know, there's big corporations of metal, but most of people are in it, small industrial yeah, units, SMEs. And I can't see that being embraced as quickly as that. Now, I do think over the next 10 years, you will see different things come into the industry, automation, robotics. You'll see a different type of person in engineering working in SMEs, you know, the graduates who are coming through who are a lot quicker to take on tech in general, whether that's in business or whether that's in the personal life to take on tech. And at that point, you'll probably see things happening quicker. But the two years... We'll soon see, won't we? Yeah. My thing, without dampening, dampening the spirit, I think two years is a bit, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit soon. What did you think when we came out of the pod? Because obviously we'd got an idea of what Fractory were about, but till we met the guys, and they were they were a lot more technical than what I assumed they'd be. I thought they'd be more the kind of lads that just sell a you know a typical SaaS product or a software as a service product. And they wouldn't really know that much about the industry sector, but they were, you know, they've got the right skill set. So yeah, I give think anyone who comes into this sector with just people who know um, software, I don't think, you know, I don't think you'd have the success, really. We're yet to see someone have a success with people in the industry now. <laughs> <laughs> On the flip side of that... Um, but I do think, obviously, that industry experience, don't you? To guide you away, you need to know 
the technicalities of it and obviously they've got that which means that they're relatable to the, the people who are trying to onboard the platform aren't they which is mm. you know you straight away get the credibility and having the chat but you know they've obviously got all the funding they've had you know they do well in Estonia that you're obviously talking about the American market and obviously they've got the UK market so you know good luck to them and I'm sure you know if, if they continue with the right they're doing them then they'll do well won't they Mm, onwards and upwards but I hope you enjoyed the pod thanks to the podcast sponsors Amaral Architectural Anglo Stainless and the UK Metals Expo Um, and we'll be back for the final episodes of season two next Tuesday we'll see you then